It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. The Scarlet Letter is over. Who's to say what is a sin in God's eyes? Do you not believe that you have sinned? I believe I have sinned in your eyes. Who's to know if God shares your views? You swear upon your mother's this symbol. Why do you wait? Put it on. It is not a badge of my shame, but your own. To me, more. They are the lie, but you are allowing them to destroy everything that is good in you. Gary Oldman. I'm in hell. Robert Duvall. Behold, the devil's own child.
Scarlet Letter. We are here talking about the Golden Raspberry Awards. The Razzies, uh, 1996's nominees for Worst Director. This is the third of our series after talking about Congo and talking about Cutthroat Island. Now we're getting to uh, one that's not a genre picture. This is, a, I guess, the only one in this whole series that is really just kind of a straight drama, an adaptation of Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel from 1850. So um, this is, as said in the opening credits, a, a, freely, a freely adapted by the novel uh, by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And, uh, you know, Roland Jaffe or Jaffe uh, directed it. Douglas Day Stewart is who they brought on to write the script. The screenwriter behind The Blue Lagoon. So perhaps might have been a sign before digging in that maybe was not the person to adapt this <laughs> properly for you. I don't know what you're talking about, man. It was so sexy. <laughs> More bath time erotica, please. Yeah. Can we just start with one, just one, just to set the table on Roland uh, Joffe, uh, as you say, uh, your friend. <laughs> Where do you stand on on Joppy's work going into this movie? The Mission is uh, one of my favorite films, which he did less than a decade before this, 1986. Uh, I absolutely love that film. I think it's a very powerful film that he uh, did in the mid-'80s. And before that, he also did uh, The Killing Fields, which is a really powerful, powerful film dealing with journalism and and everything that was going on in Cambodia at the time uh, with the uh, Pol Pot uh, and just everything that happened there. And so... Those two films I really enjoy. I never saw Fat Man and Little Boy, although I hear it's pretty good. City of Joy, I remember liking, although I can't remember much about it. But I did like it when it came out. I think it was. I think the subtitle was Patrick Swayze being earnest. I'm pretty sure that was the title <laughs> of that. But it's certainly what it felt like. Certainly what it felt like. I remember liking Goodbye Lover. I thought that was kind of an interesting film it's not it has not been well received but i do remember liking it so and then i think when i look at the films that uh roland's actually just directed i don't think i've seen anything since goodbye lover um i've heard there have been some interesting ones like vettel there be dragons um but i just i have not been following his career after that i i feel like there was a period in the 80s where there was a lot of strength in what he was doing. The 90s, things got a little messier, and then I've just kind of lost lost track. What about you? I'm just about in the same spot as as you are. It, after The Scarlet Lever, The Scarlet Lever, <laughs> The Scarlet Letter, I haven't seen That's any That's what the construction of... worker who had an affair had to wear <laughs> on his chest. It, it, is, it is The Killing Fields, The Mission, Fat Man, Little Boy, City of Joy, Super Mario Bros., and The Scarlet Letter of things that he has been involved with uh, on the big screen. I have seen them. I went into The Scarlet Letter liking uh, those movies and associating his name generally with uh, positive feelings and never saw a thing after this movie. Yeah. 
And I, I feel like that, I don't know if that's circumstantial, if my taste just sort of changed between, you know, 1995 and 1998 or what circumstances. I was out of the country for a bit there and just maybe that's just what knocked me off the Jaffe track. But man, and I, I can say I have not seen a single thing uh, that he's done on television. Yeah. And he's he's done a handful of television projects. So this movie is sort of a, a, a real interesting data point in the chronology of Jaffe. Well, and since we're talking about him, I think a, an interesting starting place for this film is the fact that uh, his direction with this, and I mean, he had quite a passion for Hawthorne's book and and kind of considered himself a Hawthorne scholar, like did a lot of research on the book and, and the man and the period and all of that. And so felt that making a lot of the changes that he did within the story to kind of expand it. And, you know, as, as he said in a number of interviews to essentially uh, change it in a way that he felt that Hawthorne was not able to do at the time he wrote the book because uh, of the, you know, the things were um, even in the 1800s, 1850s, 200 years after the story takes place, he felt that Hawthorne felt that he wouldn't be able to tell the story he wanted to tell in that time and actually have a successful novel. So still had to change some of the stuff, make the, not give the lovers a happy ending, things like that. And so I don't know. I, I think that that's an interesting place to start in a film that, you know, I, I, I listened to a little bit of the director's commentary. He's very fond of the film, still has a lot of things to say about what Hawthorne was trying to do, what he was trying to do. But I think in the scope of Worst Director, you know, we've talked a little bit about this with some of the other films that we've had in the series so far, like the whole point of the director bringing their vision to the screen there's the casting decisions there's the there's the um, decisions and all the the technical aspects that go into a project and certainly the script and you know we talked a little bit about in Cutthroat Island how one of the biggest problems there was you know the script had some really clunky dialogue and those actors just didn't fit yeah and we were like i mean Rennie Harlan is delivering a big pirate movie and he delivers on that but still he's the director he's the one who made the choice to cast his wife to to you know i don't know reluctantly or not but cast matthew modine and neither of them felt right he worked on the script a lot and he put a lot of energy into getting the scripts rewritten the way that he felt it needed to be and it wasn't good so it is kind of his fault and i don't know if it makes him the worst director or not but we're in that exact same boat here jaffe had a strong passion for the book and had a strong passion for telling a story in this puritan era but i guess it boils down to is his head just so full of all these wonderful ideas that he thinks that he can do to kind of give this story a bigger, broader life and spectrum than Hawthorne was ever able to do? And by doing so, went so far past the point where he could actually wrangle all of it together to actually make something good. I really like the the framing here, but to, to frame it between Jaffe and, and Harlan, because when you talk about this movie, I feel like at least his intentions are good, right? He's a passionate student of the period. He's a passionate student of the book. And he's trying to do something to the story to elevate it. And it doesn't 
work for me. When you look at Harlan, it's not about intention, it's about attention. I feel like on reflection of Harlan's work that he was he 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 misjudged his budget of uncertainty and he made a movie thinking that casting his wife was going to be fantastic and it was going to be the thing that's going to that's going to let this movie sail it turns out that was a big unknown right the the casting was a big unknown his attention was elsewhere was in producing a giant bombastic movie and he wasn't paying attention to some of the things that actually tear it apart uh this movie, I think his intentions were good. It just ended up being messy. The script was messy. I don't think all the pieces that he really, I believe, authentically wanted to bring together to to elevate the story just did not, it just did not play. It, it was just a mess. It is frustrating. And, you know, I, I definitely appreciate him tying all, trying to tie all these things together and feeling, well, Hawthorne, really thinned out the story with the indigenous Americans that the Puritans were dealing with at the time. You know, that was a big part of life as Puritans in early America. And in the book, it's been a very long time since I read the book. It was high school. It was a book that I wasn't a huge fan of. So I I, I didn't, you know, latch on to it uh, with anything where it's really kind of left in my head other than the elements with the A and that she has to walk around with an A all the time. So I, I had to kind of reread a synopsis. And in the book, it sounds like there's only the one Native American that I, I'm assuming it's the, the John character that yeah. hangs out with Dimsdale quite a bit. But his portrayal wasn't great. He wasn't portrayed with a lot of smarts. And that was an element that Hawthorne really left out. And so I really appreciate in the world of adaptation that Jaffe really tried to bring in that story a little bit more. Like we start the film with the death of the head of the, what is the tribe? The, the Algonquins, I believe Algonquin, that were. Yeah. And now the son is taking over. So we kind of start with that and they have this relationship with, with Reverend Dimsdale, who's been trying to kind of find a way to bridge the communities um, so that there isn't, it doesn't lead to a war. I enjoyed that we're actually getting some of that that's not in the book. Like, that was one of those things that I said, okay, in the scope of, of quote, freely adapted version, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, that they're putting that in there. Did you, I mean, where did you stand with that aspect of it? A hundred percent. It just, it, it, it actually, I, I feel like was that, that's one of the things that I, I think I'm, I'm, that I'm, I'm referring to uh, when I talk about elevating the material, right? Like he's elevating the material to the point where it makes more sense that these are the real issues that these people were going to be dealing with in Massachusetts Bay Colony and uh, trying to start this new life. Like he's, he's incorporating more elements of the, the sort of cultural conflict when you just try to build a house on somebody else's property and he doesn't go all the way uh, like it's that that's not really what the movie is about. Right. He just gives us a sense of place and world that I think makes more sense to to where we are. I, I think the you know, the the challenge that we have actually has nothing to do with the, the indigenous people. It's it's how he treats the relationship uh, between uh, Hester and Dimsdale to the very bitter end of the movie. And and that's that's a piece uh, that that I think we have to <laughs> we have to talk about. The, yeah, because in the book, it's it's a much less positive ending. Yeah. Uh, Arthur Arthur dies 
in yeah. uh, in Hester's lap af- on the uh, on the scaffold. You know, he he confesses his sins, and it's been weighing him down so much over the course of the book. It's been affecting his health and everything. He finally confesses his sins, and then uh, falls into her lap and dies. And it's revealed by some people who see that he had like carved an A onto his chest. That you know, nobody. It, it's not as visible as hers, obviously, but just showing how much pain he had with all of this. And then uh, Hester leaves with uh, with Pearl and uh, Chillingworth. Her husband disguised as Chillingworth. Uh, he ends up um, dying also. And Hester returns without Pearl later and and continues wearing the Scarlet Letter. When she dies, he's buried next to Dimsdale. And that's kind of the end of the story. And the the epitaph on her tombstone says, On a field, sable, the letter A, ghouls, which I guess means on a, on a black background, the letter A in red. So it's it's kind of like this very sad story about these people who were both persecuted one overtly and the other in internally and end up dying in misery because of it and and uh even in death they have the letter a on their gravesite and so it's a pretty depressing uh way to end it but there is a dream in the book where hester imagines a future where she and dimsdale and pearl are able to leave and go off and this speaks to those points that joffy saw in the book and felt Speaking as Joffe, I feel that Hawthorne wanted that to be the ending of the book, but didn't think that society would allow a story out there that allowed a couple like this to have a happy ending, and so felt he had to write the darker ending. And again, this is Joffe's perspective of all of this. Maybe there's more research involved. But regardless, that's where his bottom line was. And so he wanted to give the film the ending that he felt Hawthorne always wanted. And so has them riding off essentially into the sunset and um, so that they can go live happily in the Carolinas. I, I'm going to I have to ask then, what does Andy think? It felt so Hollywood to assume that we needed to have a happy ending for these characters and to not, I I get, I get it. The time of Hawthorne that maybe the religious thinkers of society at the time felt that you don't want to have a story about people who have a child in an adulterous circumstance end up having a happy ending. And so, you know, we need to have them suffer, just much like a lot of the stories during the noir era when when films were being made with these, you, you know, you can have a criminal character, but they have to have a dark ending because the the code and all of yeah. that. Well, thus proving that 145 years is not long enough to get over the fact that we are still effectively making films where the Scarlet Letter. Yeah, exactly. And but But to that point, it's like, I don't know, I guess I just didn't even feel that. In the scope of the novel, I, I find that that is one of its strengths, that these characters had to suffer and they ended up dying in misery because of it, because they never were able to effectively get out of the clutches of society and find a way to live happily. And I, I don't know, I just feel like that speaks more to the power of the way that the book ended, and they diminished that by ending it the way that they did. Hugely hugely diminished that experience. I I found that really frustrating. And I wonder how much of it, because there are so many things that do function, I think, 
pretty well. I've, I've already said I don't care for the script. I think the script is nonsense. But Jaffe has a great sense of production design and world building, and I think it looks the the film looks fantastic, right? I I think Massachusetts Bay Colony looks awesome. The boats, the all of that stuff works for me. I I think we've already talked about how you know he's updating the participants in the story, right? The indigenous people, all of that works. How much of my frustration of the film is based on a wonky script and an ending that doesn't do justice to the movie that they've just shown me. And I think those two things are significant in in how the movie plays out well and even to the point where i mean as much as i appreciate the way that he brought more involvement of the indigenous americas into the story at the end he still has this scene where dimsdale is about to be executed and then it's like the cavalry rides in and they shoot an arrow through the the uh executioner's throat and like and suddenly it's war with the uh, with the tribe and that just felt like so deus ex machina to just suddenly have that come in so that to save the day. Like that is another element that ties into all of this. It's like that just like, even if we had the happy ending and maybe the happy ending would have worked without all of this, but with a kind of a more somber tone, who knows? But regardless, the fact that it, we end up getting the happy ending because of this moment that just so frustrating just doesn't play. It was, it was a very frustrating element. Yeah. Um, so there are things we liked in the movie besides that, is there other stuff that just doesn't necessarily work for you? And I'm looking at you, Demi Moore. Well, okay. I actually think Demi Moore and Gary Oldman are giving good performances in the film, but I, I think like we're getting with even Cutthroat Island, you put the wrong actor giving a good performance in the wrong part and also just the wrong script with stuff coming out of their mouth that, that just doesn't make sense. And it just does not help. And Demi Moore, I think, can be good in the right roles. You know, I think that she's so much better in stuff like G.I. Jane, uh, even Striptease, I think, is <laughs> like a a good film. I enjoy that one. And what was the one? Disclosure and A Few Good Men. About Last Night, man. About Last Night. It all comes down to About Last Night. Uh, yeah, sure. A little earlier in the in her career. But I'm just trying to think of the 90s. Like, you know, I just I, I think that she has a lot of strength when she's in the right roles. And this just was not the right role for either her or Gary Oldman or Robert Duvall, like all three of them, they're delivering what the director asked for with the script that they were given. And they're really putting their heart and soul into it. I certainly feel that, but it just, um, it just doesn't play. It was, it was pretty tough. I think I can get away with Gary Oldman just having a bad script. I think he could pull off this part. No trouble if he was. And and I think he was he was in a trouble. He was personally having some issues, I think, at this point in his his life. Dealing still with his alcoholism, for sure. Yeah. 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 And so but but I do think like he could he could pull this off. I don't know that Demi Moore should ever have been cast in a movie in the Puritan era. I just don't. I, I never once believed that she could kind of get lost in the park. Interestingly, Duvall, for, for me, after getting over the fact that it's Robert Duvall running around naked on and doing all the horseman stuff and like scalping that guy that time, woof. This is kind of the <laughs> least Robert Duvall-y performance. 
like it, I kind of get lost in the fact that it's his face on somebody else. Like it, it really, uh, he kind of pulls off a performance here that is interesting to me. Uh, hindsight being what it is, would I would I have armchair cast Robert Duvall if I were picking my fantasy cast for this movie? No, probably not. But I don't hate it. I don't hate him doing this stuff. I think he I think he pulls it off. Uh, yeah, I mean, that could be argued. I'm not completely sure he pulls it off. I think it's a little <laughs> I don't know. It felt uncontrolled and perhaps uncontrollable from the director's perspective is how I felt like. I don't know if he it's it came across in such a crazy way that sometimes I'm like, I wonder if Jaffe is trying to get him to do a certain thing. And Duval is just like, I got this. I know what I'm doing. And just went to town because sometimes I'm just like, this is this is pretty crazy, pretty crazy. Yeah, it's it's interesting because there are certain performers who we talked about this actually in Cutthroat Island, like Gina Davis, like certain performers who I have a much harder time buying in period pieces. And Demi Moore is one of them. I, I don't see and, and you know, I, I just don't see her in that era. And I, I don't know if that's a completely fair assessment, but sometimes they're just a certain people who I just like, I have a hard time with them in period. And, and she was one of them. I just, I really struggled with putting her into that space, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. That this was that it, it was hard to get over that part. And it's frustrating when that's the principal part of the movie, right? That then yeah, we have yeah. to believe uh, all of the relationship turmoil that leads to her wearing the a patch i i don't think i ever connected with that and it, it is such an antiquated model that it it doesn't age up well as an artifact of of history uh, an artifact of this book it seems kind of silly in in modern eyes so the movie already being messy it, it sort of starts to lampoon itself as soon as we have her wearing the patch and having the little drummer boy behind her. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't take the little drummer boy. Although, it's like, it was a real surprise. Like, I had forgotten, and that is from the book, that they actually had a drummer boy follow her everywhere she went just so the people would be more apt to notice her and comment on the fact that there's that woman with the A. What a, what a harlot. What a heathen. Etc. Etc. Very interesting element, but it, it makes for it's it's so big that it really does make for if you're going to put it into a film, it has to be in the right hands to make it somehow work in a believable way. What about the witch trial stuff? Well, and okay, this is a whole other aspect of the book, and I can't remember how much of this is in the, the how much of this is in the book that Jaffe and uh, Stewart incorporate into it but we've got all of this women live stuff that's going on like as soon as as soon as we have the arrival of of hester prynne on the docks you know she's already wearing too much lace for some of the puritan men you know they're already like you might want to tone that down a little bit they invite her to dinner and she's like yeah no i'm gonna buy a home for myself and they're like oh my god no woman can live by themselves like they're already pushing this character to be very big in the way of um you know a woman 
should be able to think for herself. And and she's having meetings with all the women to talk about all of this stuff. And per her eyes, it's very biblical. Like, you know, women are the messengers of God or the teachers of God's word, all this sort of stuff. Like, she's, she's well-read, another thing the men don't like. There are a lot of elements like that that absolutely held true in this period of time. You know, the witch trials, you know, you start having people like Joan Plowright's character who you know, uses all the herbs and stuff, and suddenly people are going to call her a witch. That's that's definitely an element. Um, her character's element as a witch is very, my recollection is pretty small in the book, but it's there. But they really expanded on all of this stuff to the point where at, at times this film really felt like we want to make this like a, a women's lib film and we're going to really be talking about, you know, the feminist angle. And we want to make sure that we're talking about like we're showing these men as just terrible people who just don't let women have, uh, you know, have uh, their say. They don't want their women educated. And. Uh, you know, I certainly appreciate that point of view. I love stories about that. I think it's very important. But this is one of those elements where I started wondering if if Jaffe had the idea of bringing all of these other elements into the story, and it ended up kind of watering down the focus of the story, which really is just about the A and the adultery and a lot of that sort of stuff. And it just became about so many other things that I, I I felt like by the time all of these other women were also getting round up and, and locked up and everything that I'm just like, I feel like, am I watching a mashup between The Crucible and The Scarlet Letter? Like, where am I? And and that's, that's I think, um, while his intentions may have been good to bring all of this together, I felt like it was, it was too much and it was uh, unmanageable. Yeah, I think that was it. My, you know, I, I had to read up on the book just to figure out what, was the whole witch thing a thing in the book? And Harriet Hibbins... That's Joan Plowright's character. ...was uh, depicting Anne Hibbins, who was a character in the book, who was executed for witchcraft in 1656. And the book doesn't make explicit mention of her being a witch. That's my understanding of it. I don't remember that, but that's my understanding on, on reading summaries. So... It feels like actually Nathaniel was trying was was layering that uh, much more subtly than Jaffe and team did. And I think you're absolutely right. It makes for a cake with too many layers by the time we get to the Algonquin fight at the end. Again, I acknowledge that all of this is kind of happening at the same time. The Salem witch trials were, I think, in the 1690s. So. A few years after this, it certainly would make sense that at this point they're starting to have those thoughts and everything and and uh, perhaps already executing people for being witches and whatnot. It's an interesting element. But again, I just can't help but think that it may be beyond the scope of what the kind of the intentions of the story that Hawthorne's telling and the idea of I mean, you know, the actual title of the book is The Scarlet Letter, A Romance and I, I feel like while we do have the heated romance between these two characters, I feel like a lot of the sense of the actual intentions of the story as, you know, how do we deal with this love we have for each other in a time where we're not allowed to? And this is, I mean, it's it's an interesting element. And, we, and it touched on it like her husband, Hester Prynne's husband, Roger, Dr. Roger Prynne, 
is believed, he's on his way, he's believed to have been killed by an attack. Uh, another tribe attacks the ship and kills everybody. Only later, and the, much later in the story, he actually appears having escaped. He had been held hostage and whatnot. And that is pretty much the case in the book as well. And so there is this element of when they find out, they don't consummate their relationship till after she finds out her husband's dead, presumably. But they, they talk about this element, how, and I can't remember exactly, but it's something like, you know, we can't come out with our you know, saying that we have a relationship until seven years after yes. your, since your husband's body was never found, we have to wait seven years to presume that he is in fact dead before we could actually have a, a relationship out in the open, which was like, like that was some of the stuff that I feel like I want more of like that sort of stuff. And I'm not saying I want like a litigious story about the rules and everything, but like, those are some interesting elements in the nature of having a relationship after a husband has died and things you have to think about. Like I found that stuff so much more interesting and like the women's, the, the rights of the women to think for themselves and all that, like that's great. But I just feel like we're moving so far past the actual focus of a story about a relationship. There was only, that was the only part in the movie where I stopped and said seven years. Oh, right. These are puritanicals. <laughs> you kind of <laughs> yeah. forget. Like that's they, they they allow us to coin a term that defines a certain cultural ideology. And uh, yeah. I do. I agree with you. Like they they went for so much in the movie that lost the thread of the fact that this movie uh, had an opportunity to talk much more deeply about. Um, about issues that I think were were more important, and instead they just jammed in more of Robert Duvall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting depiction that they had, where he kind of went as he was being held by the tribe. Uh, he kind of goes mad to the point where they say he's got a bad spirit living inside yeah. of him, and all this sort of stuff. We got to give him back. <laughs> yeah, to get rid of this thing. And um, an interesting element that uh, Joffe did talk about in his commentary is that you know he he will end up scalping who he thinks is Dimsdale. It's actually Brewster, but uh, he he kills him and scalps him in a way that. Uh, is presumably to make it seem like the the tribe nearby has actually killed this person yes. and war is on its way and all this sort of stuff. Jaffe talks about how the idea of scalping in the um, in the indigenous American communities is there's a there's a more um, spiritual side to it and there's a specific way that they do it and I I didn't know of this actually and a lot of white men started adopting scalping as a way to, one, torture and kill their own victims when they were fighting, but also to pin it on the indigenous Americans. And and when the white men would do their scalping, it was a much more vicious, brutal, like full top of your head, like ripping all the skin off sort of thing that we see Duval do here. And I thought that was actually an interesting little element that was depicted here. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, and again, uh, it feels like I need you to tell me that. Well, yeah, I wouldn't have known that either without that. Right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really interesting. All right. So casting doesn't play. No. Too, ma too many stories. Can we talk about the, the voiceover? I know you hate voiceover. Yeah, I do. 
specifically voiceover that can be a little too um, on the nose. This voiceover is Pearl later in life recounting the story of her parents, essentially. I mean, thoughts? <laughs> well, and what does it mean? What does it mean on the nose? And to me, it means... Do I get anything from the voiceover that's required for me to fully engage with the story that they're showing me on screen? Because a voiceover typically indicates they are both showing me and telling me at the same time and uh, largely have little confidence that I'm going to get it as a viewer, that they don't trust me as an audience member. And I think this movie is kind of case in point for that. I think the story works fine without Pearl's voice over me it's the scarlet letter man like i don't need i don't need pearl i I just need you to show me what's happening and do it in a way that that allows me to feel without pearl telling me what to feel it was a, a strange uh voiceover also really flatly read like just had no energy it was a snooze to every time it popped up i'm like ugh, rolling my eyes at it and it it didn't add anything to the story. And, and where is she? Did you ever think about where the hell is she? What what framing mechanism does this serve? Yeah, right. And it also just feels like something that was added after the fact. Like, I, I really wondered if it was, in fact, in the original script or not. And if it was something that had to end up getting added during the post process when they realized eh, you know we we don't have all the right things to thread some of these scenes together and so they had to just write a write this voiceover to kind of tie things together like it just felt uh it, it just ended up feeling sloppy with it in there yeah i i totally agree I, and and maybe maybe they did need some bridging elements like I, I get that real practical need when you're sitting in the edit bay trying to figure out how to get from one part to the next part. Uh, but this is a pretty it, it's a pretty cheap way to do it. And I think you're absolutely right on how flatly read it is. And the fact that it never comes back around to explain why we're listening to Pearl in the first place after watching Pearl as an infant for a lot of the movie. Like it's it's just I don't understand I don't understand the use of the disembodied voice. So, no, yeah, frustrating. Are you? Do you want to fight over the score? Uh, we can. Would you like to fight <laughs> over the score? <laughs> I don't think I. I don't think I want to fight. And I, he's one of your Jays. Well, okay, yeah, and I. I gotta apologize first off. You know, we're talking about one of my 10 J's in in film composing this week. I can't believe that considering how brilliant John Debney's score is. In fact, for for me, it's the best thing about Cutthroat Island that I didn't once bring it up last week. I mean, John Debney's score is so good. Another of my 10 J's. And that score kicks ass. This score, John uh, Barry, uh, I guess what happened is Ennio Morricone may have initially kind of been discussed in doing it. He started writing some things, but it never came to fruition. Elmer Bernstein was then hired to write a score for the film. It was rejected. It wasn't rejected out and out, but I guess what happened is Demi Moore, who had uh, earlier worked on Indecent Proposal, uh, an interesting Adrian Lyne film that he did, John Barry wrote the score. Demi Moore really wanted John Barry to write the score for this, and apparently Jaffe agreed brought him on, even though Elmer Bernstein had already written a score. John Barry is a very passionate, romantic composer. I really enjoy his love themes. I just enjoy the way that his music works. While I probably will agree with you that the score's pretty heavy-handed in this film, 
I don't think it's the score's fault. I think it's the fact that the film isn't delivering on the emotional level that the score is. And so because of that, the score just feels like it's, it feels like it's pushing you a lot. But I, I think on a listen by itself, I think the score is beautiful. I, I really enjoy the score. That being said, Elmer Bernstein's score was also released uh, subsequently with a few other um, rejected scores of Bernstein's. And I really <laughs> like that score too. And I, I may have felt it, I preferred it with the uh, kind of the tone of the film. I, I, I honestly, this isn't even worth fighting about because I agree with you. I just think I agree more heavily on the end that it is an incredibly heavy handed score and it's so repetitive. They use the same theme in the same function so many times in the movie. To, I, I don't know if it's trying to functionally get me back to an emotional place that I was feeling earlier, but it just becomes nonsense. Specifically, what triggered this is, uh, I, I think I texted you, I said, if I have to sit here and listen to that stupid theme song again, I'll jam a screwdriver in my ears. Because by the end, it was too much. I get it. It was just too, they they were just shoving it down my throat. I, I could not, I, like, I just couldn't take it. Um, so I get it. It is a lovely score and a lovely theme taken without the movie, the movie makes the score worse. And that's the sort of uh, case in point with something like the score in The Last of the Mohicans, which is another uh, score that I love. But when you watch the film and you hear that score, that that theme being used, you know, every five minutes, it's a point like, my goodness, like, can we put something else on for a little bit and that's that's one of those things that's frustrating wait who was who was mohicans was that marconi um last mohicans was uh trevor jones i believe oh, okay yeah well it's interesting to do the, and i think what i expected and i know that the period is very different like uh, the mission was set a hundred years later than than scarlet letter but you see a bunch of people in funny dress running around the jungle and you expect one of the greatest scores of all time to accompany it when it's, you know, and, and so I think I went into watching this movie expecting the score to the mission, and maybe I just should have put it on and played it in the background. <laughs> it's, it is lovely. And then the, the, you know, the, the, this film looks great. It just needed better treatment. Yeah. 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 Uh, speaking of better treatment, you also texted me about the bird. <laughs> this this red bird, I mean, it's a beautiful red bird. It's actually a canary that they dyed red for the purposes of the film. I don't know how oh uh, much that fits in the Humane Society's uh, regulations, but uh, they, they dyed a canary red. And instead of using a cardinal, maybe it's a canary is more easily trainable. I, I don't know. But regardless, it's wait. It don't feels you don't like... think we should stop and at least evaluate how one might dye a bird? <laughs> don't you just like dip it in the dye like hold it dip by its little feet and just kind of do a little dip 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 like a corn dog yeah that's how i would do it that is an <laughs> that is an awful thing to say <laughs> okay i mean i guess we can just hand wave that by but yeah i think i think we have to remember that consent is a thing you have to hear. <laughs> you can't just feel it real strong. And I'm not sure that canary consented to being died. Yeah, okay, probably not. But did the horses in The Wizard of Oz consent to be dying, dyed green? Probably not. 
Why is it that for some reason painting a horse is so much different than dipping a bird in red <laughs> dye to me? Why is that different? They probably just dusted it. You know, I don't know how they paint a canary. Like, why is this a thing I should know? <laughs> okay. All right. We can just move on to the sex then. Okay. But the red bird, I felt, wow, okay, this is the overt. Uh, red bird of passion that is like leading her into the woods to uh, to find a naked Gary Oldman skinny dipping and bathing. Later, the bird is there when they finally consummate their relationship in the barn. Also, the bird flies into the house and her uh, house servant slash slave Mituba uses the red bird as an opportunity to discover herself in the bathtub. It becomes a bird where anytime it's around, people are horned up. <laughs> I like overt symbolism, like <laughs> right. Hitting the nail on the head a little much with that one, I thought. Yes, I think so too. I think it's I think it's ridiculous. And and, and very much too much the fact that the, the bird is around whenever people are horny. I uh, you're right. You you really don't know what comes first. The horny bird or the egg. Of the horny bird, like, <laughs> like what comes first, the sex or the horny bird? Would uh, a red-dyed canary lay a red egg? <laughs> that's interesting. I don't, I don't care to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep if that. you ever find a red egg, <laughs> it's, that's a sign. Oh my gosh! Okay. Uh, anyone else in the in the cast or uh, any other uh, crew parts that you want to talk about that you feel are uh, stand out? All we talked about were um, you know the principal three, right? Like we didn't talk about uh, Governor Bellingham, Edward Hardwick, or Robert Prosky. Good old Robert Prosky. I guess we we mentioned Plowright, but but there were other faces in this thing that were parading around. I think Prosky is a guy I can't take seriously. <laughs> It's, it's, uh, you know, as the the honorable uh, preacher, I struggled with him in the in this place of cultural religious uh, superiority. Yeah, I I didn't quite believe him. It's yet another sign of weird casting choices. Maybe it's his just iconic voice that I never believed. Maybe he would be better in a stage performance of this thing. I I don't I don't know. I just think he's. He's got a lot of baggage as a performer, and it makes this part tough. I don't know if I had uh, too much of an issue with any of those other characters. I mean, certainly some of them, like Dana Ivey plays his wife, Robert Prosky's wife, uh, and she is like so perfect in the role. Like she fits to a T the idea of a woman a pur- in this Puritan period. Like I buy her. In the part. Yeah. Robert Prosky, I didn't have a huge issue with. I think I thought he was fine. Same thing with Edward Hardwick. This may speak a little bit like I I really enjoyed the cinematography, the costumes and everything. I think that there's a a struggle I have sometimes with people wearing these this longer hairstyle that was popular in this era, whether it's a wig or they actually have long hair. Some people I just kind of struggle with, you know, buying into the way that they look with that. Uh, with that hair. And Prosky was one of them where it just felt more wiggish. Mm-mm. But it's a weird era because I acknowledge that a lot of people are wearing actual wigs. And so yeah. that's one of those things. I'm like, does it look like a wig in a way where it just looks bad and I'm noticing it? 
or does it look like a modern wig? Like, why am I not buying the way that he ended up looking? You know what I mean? Well, especially because I never had a question with how Gary Oldman looked with his. No, yeah, I didn't either. Yeah, he was great. You're right. I that's a that becomes a central sort of question that some of some of them worked. Some of them didn't. And, And I liked like with Robert Duvall's character. He's when he's held by the tribe, you see that he's got short hair. And when he shows up, he's got short hair. And then suddenly, once he's got his bags unpacked and stuff, he's wearing his long hair for the rest of the film. He's got his wig. So there's your wig. Yeah. But what I what I I laughed at, I actually wrote a note because (laughs) we hit this point in the film with him purely unintentional laughter from me. Every single time where something is happening and then you pan over and you see he's watching. And I just wrote in my notes, like straight out of uh, Monsters, Inc., always watching. (laughs) (laughs) Just like he was always there in the shadows. And I was like, oh, my God. To the point where we'd get to a certain scene. I'm like, oh, we're going to see him in a minute, aren't we? Where is he? Where is he hiding? And then sure enough, we'd, we'd find him in the background just watching. It was very well, funny. <laughs> where's Bobby? I, <laughs> I. It, there's an interesting thing though. I mean, one of the one of the criticisms of the movie actually is that the costumes are too. I'll say good as shorthand, but they're too robust for the film itself to carry. That it becomes a. Uh, this becomes a movie that's like a, a a model of style over substance. Like there's just not enough to it to make up for the production design, the costume design. That it it really does look good, but having people parade around in the giant dresses and and the wigs and stuff actually detracts from the movie itself. And uh, the, the, I think that's that that might be a fair statement because it's not like this stuff doesn't look good. Right, but but did it did it look too nice? Yeah. Does it carry? Maybe they each need to roll around in the mud before they called action. I I actually there are some sequences where um Dimsdale is helping Hester get the cart out of the mud in the beginning when she's on her way to church and they do some really sexy close-ups of his feet in the mud. Like over and over, we keep cutting back to his boots in the mud. And I think maybe that's the reason, Andy, because they want you to remember that this movie looks good, but we're not afraid to get our shoes dirty. <laughs> Look at that. Look yeah. At that. They only did that one scene that way. Everything else was immaculate. D- yeah, because I'm trying to remember because the, when, when we go to church it's a big reveal that he's actually the, the yeah, reverend the and he's going to actually yeah. be up on the pulpit speaking. And we start on his feet as he's walking up and then the camera pans up his body as he's climbing up to the pulpit and then finally revealing that it's him speaking. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember now, were his feet actually muddy or by that point, <laughs> had he been completely cleaned off? Yeah. <laughs> the The other question, the other note that I wrote when she is just looking for her house, right? And she picks the house that's out over the, over the water beautiful. She walks in that house. My question for you is, how long had that house been abandoned when she got to it? Because it looks like it was like 80 years old, and that felt weird. Well, and they talked about that very briefly, like some people who had lived out there who, I can't remember what they even said, but like had been killed by the yeah. by the natives or something. Because you know, you're outside by those of savages. the yeah. community proper. You're outside of protection. But it never seemed to be a problem for her. So uh, there was like another element that they added in there that I'm like, I, I feel like... It, you're just throwing something in there because it never becomes a problem that she's living out there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. 
Um, just one last little side note. Uh, both Scout and Tallulah Willis uh, are playing young versions of Pearl. Tallulah was the infant, and Scout was young Pearl. Oh, look at that. Oh, yeah. Nepo babies. Keeping it in the, in the family. A literal Nepo, Nepo baby. It is a Nepo yeah. baby and a Nepo yeah. youth. Nepo toddler. Yeah. Nepo toddler. Uh, you got anything? Anything else? No, that's it. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ben Winwood, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. This has been around uh, a long time, been adapted a bunch of times. How do you approach the sequels and remakes question? <laughs> well, it becomes less about sequels and remakes and more just other interpretations, I guess we'll just say, of the story. Uh, there have been it's it's been on stage. The first play was 1858. And there has been a an opera version of it since. There have been a number of film versions. Starting in 1908, there was a short film. And then 1911, uh, 1926, 1934, 1973, directed by Wim Wenders, which is interesting. I'm actually curious to see what that one would be like, because uh, certainly Wenders is a, a director that I enjoy. There was a TV miniseries in 79, this version... And then it's hard to not talk about Easy A, the film that Will Gluck directed with Emma Stone early on in her career. That is a, a very fun adaptation of it. And it kind of set in American high school, kind of a rom-com where she's a high school student who is deemed 
um, easy and so decides to put that on her uh, an A on her chest and it kind of turns into this thing. And I, you know, I felt like that was actually a really interesting way to adapt to the story. I enjoyed that film. I didn't love it, but I certainly enjoyed what they were doing with that one. I, I did too. I actually, I'm, I'm trying to think is it, like we're watching the 95 version as, as you are listing all of the versions, which one is considered the best? I, I don't know. Uh, you know, there've been a lot of different versions. Um, I just, I like nothing says on this list, like what people say is the, the best adaptation of it. So I'm not sure. Okay. I've got one. I've got one. The one with Meg Foster as Hester Prynne and John Hurt as Arthur Dimsdale, the 1979 made-for-TV movie version miniseries. It's, it is noted for its adherence to the source material and has been used in educational settings to complement the study of the novel. Gotcha. So that's, that's something. That's the version to check out. That's the version to check out. Not, the, not this one. I would say, I actually, is this a, is this a Razzie caliber film? Yeah, this fits. Well, it's interesting because I've been thinking about the Razzies and the fact that there are just straight up bad movies out there. Yeah. And you have to acknowledge that I think the intent of the Razzies is to pick big things that are going to get talked about. Like, I don't think that the Razzies are going to actually pick some obscure little film that actually was just terrible. I think their entire goal is to pick things that, you know fit what their intentions are of kind of parodying the Oscars, right? The idea that we're going to take these big films that are, are you know, aiming for something big and end up being complete disasters. I think that's really what they're going for. So to that end, yeah, I think this absolutely fits the caliber of what the, the Razzies are targeting. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to talk about awards, but I am surprised to hear myself say out loud, this is not a one-star movie for me. So. There you go. Okay. All right. I will just, you know, in the scope of adaptation, since we're here, here still, just to note that John Updike actually rewrote this in his The Scarlet Letter trilogy, which is made up of S, A Month of Sundays, and Roger's version. He rewrote it. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but I think he basically took the, the structure, characters, and themes from The Scarlet Letter and kind of recrafted it across this trilogy of his. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, yeah. Uh, okay. So, uh, how to do it award seasons, besides the Razzies? Well, uh, it wasn't a huge award film. It had, Although it did have one win with 10 other nominations, MTV Movie and TV Awards, Most Desirable Female, Demi Moore, lost to Alicia Silverstone in Clueless, which we've talked about on the show before. At the, I didn't know this existed, the Political Film Society, it was nominated for a Human Rights Award, but lost to Murder in the Food, Murder in the Food, <laughs> <laughs> lost to Murder in the First. It also was nominated for a Peace Award, but lost to Beyond Rangoon. At the Stinkers Bad Movie Awards, Moore was nominated for Worst Actress, but lost to Julia Sweeney in It's Pat, the movie, also beating out Cindy Crawford in Fair Game, Elizabeth Berkley in Showgirls, and Natasha Henstridge in Species. And last but not least, of course, the Razzies. This lost worst picture to Showgirls, the one win was for worst remake or sequel, and beating out Ace Ventura when Nature Calls, Dr. Jekyll and Ms. Hyde, Showgirls, and Village of the Damned. Moore lost worst actress to Elizabeth Berkley in Showgirls. Robert Duvall lost worst supporting actor to Dennis Hopper in Waterworld. 
Uh, it lost worst screen couple, as it said, for Demi Moore and either Robert Duvall or Gary Oldman. <laughs> In either case, <laughs> it lost to Showgirls for, as they said, any combination of two people or two body parts. <laughs> lost was, worst director to Paul Verhoeven for Showgirls and lost worst screenplay to Showgirls. We're going to have a lot to talk about yeah. when we talk about Showgirls. Showgirls that's for cleaned sure. up. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, how did it do uh, at the box office? Did it, did it make any movie money back on the budget? Ajafi had a budget of $50 million for this period piece, which, as you may recall from our Congo episode, which had the same budget, is $104 million in today's dollars. This movie opened October 13th, 1995, opposite Jade and the limited indie release of Blue in the Face. It was only in theaters for a few weeks, earning just $10 million domestically, or $21.6 million in today's dollars. That lands the film with an adjusted loss per finished minute of $610,000 and showed the world that it did not pay to turn this classic literature into, as some said, romance novel smut. Jeez. Romance novel <laughs> smut. Ouch. <sighs> yep. Uh, well, okay. Uh, so it it it's a movie. I think the thing that that I get away is I just like Oldman so much. I'm so in the bag for Gary Oldman that he can do I, I, he can do a lot and and make a movie a little bit better for me. Well, to the point, it's interesting that uh, Goldman was interviewed uh, by um, Peter Travers in 2011, and Travers asked him to name a few films in his catalog that he would take to a desert island. And of the four films, Oldman called out one was the scarlet letter i i think this speaks to the fact that i i think they're giving good performances even yeah. if they're um misdirected but um and he acknowledged the travers said travers said the film was hammered by reviewers and goldman argued there is some good work in there and so, you know i mean i do agree i think there is some good work in this one you know what i i like so much about just how you were talking about that is you referred to gary oldman twice as goldman and it's it's like <laughs> it's G Oldman. With <laughs> That's the what I period. heard. Is it G period Oldman? And I really like that. We should start doing that more. <laughs> Demore, Goldman, Rudival. <laughs> oh, yep, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie: Paul Verhoeven's Showgirls. So, what are you going to Vegas for? You gonna win? I'm gonna dance. There's a spot open in the chorus line. I think you should try out. I got an audition! Okay, ladies. I got one interest here, and that's the show. I don't care whether you live or die. I want to see you dance, and I want to see you smile. From the creators of Basic Instinct, the last time they took you to the edge, this time they're taking you all the way. We take the cash, we cash the check, we show them what they want to see. It's not about fair, it's about power. You're a stripper, don't you get it? I'm a dancer. She's dazzling, she's exciting, and she's what Las Vegas is all about. Showgirls. Leave your inhibitions at the door. Thank you.
It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Siam based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and a Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. Letterboxd, Andy, it's time to talk about what you're going to do with your stars. I don't, I don't need to give too many to it, but I will give it, uh, I will give it a plural. What are you going to do? I, yeah, and you said that. I'm, I'm kind of surprised because you gave, you were upset that you couldn't give a half star to Cutthroat Island. Yeah. And, and to me, and I gave Cutthroat Island one and a half, and I, I enjoy that film. Like, that's a film I'd watch again because it's just fun. This is not necessarily a fun film. Uh, I, I perhaps would listen to the full commentary at some point just to kind of get a sense as to uh, Joffy's um, you know, intent through the entire thing. Um, but I don't know if I need to revisit this one again. I, I'm torn. Is it is it like worse star-wise than one and a half? And I don't feel like I, I need to drop it below that because I do think there are a lot of good things in here. So I'm going to say one and a half. All right, I'm going to give it two. I'm not going to give it a heart, but I think that what they were trying to do didn't succeed overall, but it succeeded in parts. Yes. And so in insofar as it's a movie that's a full of paper cuts, there's, it's got something going on with it. It's got something. It's got something as long as you're not taking a bath in lemon juice. Ow, man. <laughs> the red bird is nef- definitely not here. <laughs> All right. Well, don't forget, you can find me over at Letterboxd at Soda Creek Film. You can find Pete at Pete Wright. And, of course, you can find the show at The Next Reel. So what did you think about The Scarlet Letter? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we'll be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. All right. So what are what are you going to do? Did you go high or low? I went middle of the road. I found a three star. Okay. 
Okay. You should go first. I want to hear how pleasant this is. All right. Uh, the three stars from Benja, who says, not as big a turd as I was expecting. Not a turd at all, actually. Not a good movie by any means either, but an enjoyable one that works way better as an unintentional comedy with a mishmash of tweaky accents, funny-looking wigs, lots of baths and side boobs, Gary and Demi having sexy time in a rice barn, unintended camp, and Duvall hunting scalps a la Assassin's Creed. <laughs> Mindless fun, if you ask me. A la Assassin's Creed. That's nice. I, I went with a one star from Matt Lynch, who says, there's a moment in this where Hester is in jail, massively pregnant, and we see Demi Moore with a big, obviously prosthetic belly and a little animatronic baby kick makes a brief bump. And it's sort of emblematic of just how silly and overbaked this has become in a very 90s effort to make Hawthorne's really sturdy construction and, for this time, contemporary themes into this horny and exciting and quasi-feminist period epic. Really last of the Mohicansing it up, but stupid. <laughs> Duval taking scalps in the moonlight, though. I'd watch a whole movie about that. <laughs> oh, I love it. I, I love it, too. I love it anytime somebody artfully uh, takes a movie title and applies the gerundic form to it. Last of the Mohicansing it up is is a real work of art. So thank you, Matt Lynch. Yeah. Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash Transistor. Start growing your podcast today. 